0: chapter 14. Right at the beginning of chapter 14, we're in a series of the gospel of John, and today uh, we're calling the message God's Cure for Heart Trouble. So as I was preparing for the message, I was doing a bit of uh, Googling around. Uh, I was looking for like stuff about anxiety and fear, and I came across this list. Uh, there's a lot of fears that I didn't even know existed. For instance, these are some actual phobias that some Americans have. Uh, cathisphobia, the fear of sitting. That's an odd one, isn't it? Or uh, ablutophobia, the fear of bathing. Or here's a, a a common one, I think. Dentophobia, the fear of the dentist. Uh, cyclophobia, the fear of bicycles. Uh, here's a tricky one. Uh, electorophobia That's the fear of chickens. Where's, uh, where's Carol Wheeler? Is she around? She's, chicken. She, she's the chicken lady. Uh, electorophobia the fear of chickens. Uh, and then here's another one. Uh, I, I never heard of this one. Arac- uh, buta Oh man, I, I messed that one up. Arachibutophobia, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. That's strange. <laughs> uh, there's another one. Uh, automata, uh, automatonophobia, the fear of uh, ventriloquist dummies, uh, dummies. Automaton, yeah. And uh, and then this is my favorite one I found. Um, Pilatophobia, the fear of baldness or bald people. How about that? Maybe that's why people are scared of me. I don't know. (laughs) And then, of course, phobophobia. The fear of phobias. So, you know, there are a lot of things in this world, right, that cause us worry and fear and stress. Life is filled with troubles, is it not? Uh, Job. Job was so troubled. In Job 5.7, he said, man is born unto trouble. If anybody knew about trouble, it was Job. Life is filled with disappointments. Maybe you had certain goals that you set for yourself as a younger man or woman, and you never reached those goals. Or maybe you you wanted to be a, a better person in some way, but you fell short. Or maybe you wanted to be more successful, but you've had some failures along the way. Maybe you wanted to be more loved, but you often feel that people are indifferent towards you. Or our circumstances, those are another source of troubles, aren't they? The circumstances of life. Maybe you've had some bad news recently. Maybe you've lost a job or you are dealing with some sort of illness. Or or maybe there's problems at home right now. Problems, troubles are pervasive. And I wanna share with you though the words of Jesus that he gave 2,000 years ago to a group of stressed out agitated guys. God's cure for heart trouble. Let's uh, read these words together. They're on the screen. John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. The words of our Lord Jesus. So, why were these guys so afraid when Jesus offered these words to them? We've been working our way through John, and we know some of the reasons. It was, uh, you know, because he just dropped a number of bombshells right into their life, hadn't he? he had, uh, just in the last chapter, we saw that he revealed that he was going to be betrayed by one of the 12 guys. And then he, he told Simon Peter, who was regarded as kind of the leader of the disciples, that Simon Peter was going to betray him. And then Jesus gave the worst news of all. He was leaving them. What? They still didn't understand that Jesus came to this earth with the express purpose of going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, rising from the dead. They thought that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. And so when he said, I'm going to leave you, it freaked them out. They'd spent three years following Their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, their master. And now he says, I'm out of here. What do you mean? And so that's why Jesus went on to say, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What a great statement from the Lord. A statement perhaps that you can play in your heart, in your mind, the next time that you're in a difficult situation. Listen for the words of the Lord saying, let not your heart be troubled don't be afraid. He's saying, when it seems like your life, your world is falling apart, when you're at the end of your rope and darkness is going to overtake you, don't fall into that deep abyss of trouble. And then Jesus goes on to offer them some, I think some reasons why they didn't have to be worried. And I think these principles apply to us today in this agitated, stress-filled, anxiety-prevalent world that we live in. And so I want to consider these, these principles. And I want you to think of them kind of like medicine, all right? Or an antidote. You know what an antidote is? It's a, a medicine that's taken to counteract a, a poison. All right, and so here are three antidotes to counteract the troubles of this world, the troubles of this life. And and the first antidote that we want to take note of is that we are to take God at his word. That's Jesus' first antidote for heart trouble. Take God at his word. In verse one, Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me, when you became a Christian, when you uh, admitted to God that you were a sinner and you chose to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what happens? God takes residence inside you and he begins to reveal to you his plan and his purpose for you in this world. You see, there are no more accidents. You're not merely a victim of fate, You don't have to hope that your luck is going to run out at some point. Now you are a child of God under his divine protection. And the good news is there's no oops in God's vocabulary. God has given us, we might say, the user's manual for life. Do you like gadgets? I like gadgets, technology, you know, more storage, more power, more memory, more CPU, I like all that stuff. But here's the problem with me. I don't like reading manuals. I just don't. I want to use the gadgets, but I really don't have the time or the interest to know all the intricacies. It just irritates me. But sometimes we we do that with God, don't we? We run off And we don't use the user's manual that God has provided for us, his word. God has told us how to live, what the purpose of life is, and most importantly, how to spend eternity with him. It's all here in the manual. And the Bible tells me there are certain things I should not do. It tells me there are certain things that I should do if I want to live a life that's full and meaningful. And so if you're feeling like, Life is not full and meaningful. Perhaps you've drifted away from the manual. So, you know what we do then? We kind of, even times that we spend in the manual, we'll read it and then what, what do we do? We'll say, well, I'm gonna, I think I'll do it this way. This, this seems like a better way to me. And then we get into a mess, don't we? Scripture tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us about what is true and to make us uh, realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do right. It's God's way of preparing us in every way for every good thing that God wants to do. So why should we be freaking out with stress and agitation and fear? take God at his word. God's word is true. Believe it, trust it, follow it, and see what happens. Take God at his word. That's the first antidote to heart trouble in this life. The second one is uh, for a Christ follower is that they don't have to have a troubled heart if they realize this, trust in God's prepared future trust in god's prepared future we are going to heaven jesus says in verse two of our text in my father's house are many rooms by the way this is only true for the person who has put their full trust in jesus christ as lord and when we do guess what we know i know that when i die i will be with the lord that's not a boast It's not because I'm any any better than anybody else in this room right now, but I am better off if you have not committed your life to Christ. I'm just one beggar telling all the rest how to find food. Because I put my faith in Christ, I know that when I die, I will be with the Lord. That is a promise given to me and to every person who has put their faith in Christ. And so we can trust in that prepared future. No matter what happens to you on this earth, it pales in comparison with that greatest of all hopes. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, 4.17 says, Our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long, and yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. I love that. Friends, instead of a laser focus on the temporary troubles that are going on in your life right now, we should be focusing on what we will have that is not yet seen. The troubles that we experience in this life will soon be over, but the joys that are promised will come and will last forever. That's because we are created by God to long for something more there is a sense in us that there is more to life if I go back to my illustration of gadgets you know gadgets are really cool when you first get them aren't they you think all right this is the latest the greatest the newest thing and and then your friend comes along and they've got a newer better gadget right that just came out and all of a sudden your gadget's not so cool anymore that's kind of what we do with life, right? We think, oh, if I just had this, then I'd be happy. If I were married to that man or that woman, then, I, I, then I'd have it. If I lived in that house or I drove that car or if I had a better job, then, then I would be fulfilled. But if you end up finding yourself in any of those possessions, you know what? You get the car or the person or whatever it is. and You say, oh, well, I don't know. I, maybe it's this other thing. Maybe it's this other thing. We're always searching because we are hardwired to know, to know that there's something more. And God wants us to understand that it's Him. You know, animals don't sit around and contemplate the meaning of life, do they? Your your dog doesn't lie in the backyard and think, oh, what's the meaning of life? I've tried everything that life has to offer. I've chased cats and I've drank toilet water and I ate out of the garbage can and nothing fills the void. Your dog doesn't think like that. But people do, right? People think about that kind of stuff all the time. Friends, our prepared future is to be with God in Christ. And so we must trust that We must prepare for that. We must think about that. Because one day, we will step into that prepared future. What a great antidote to the troubles of this life. Trust in God's prepared future. And then number three, the third antidote for our troubled heart is to treasure Christ's return. Because Jesus is coming back. Now, although they're nearly a, a thing of the past these days, we don't talk a lot about newspapers anymore, but did you know that newspapers have a, a certain type, a font, that they save only for what they call mega events? And that type is called Second Coming type. Isn't that interesting? It's a, it's a term used in news design for the extra large headline type reserved for only the most momentous of occasions. You know, it was used for like, for instance, when President Kennedy was assassinated or when Pearl Harbor was bombed or on September 12th after the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. It's the kind of type that grabs your attention. It grabs you by the throat and it says, read me. Something big has happened. They don't call it big news type or major event type. Those things are happening all the time. They call it second coming type because, friends, there is no bigger event than the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the second coming is closer than we might realize. Jesus says, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Christ is coming back for those who are watching those who are waiting the bible says in hebrews 9:28 that he will come again but not to deal with our sins you see if we're in christ our sins have already been dealt with the second time jesus comes he will come bringing salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him eagerly waiting how about you are you ready For the return of Jesus. Are you eagerly anticipating it? The Bible says that he'll come in a moment. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Will you be ready to meet the Lord? Are you eager? And then Jesus says to the the guys. He says. And you know the way where I'm going. Now you know, the Lord said things all the time that the disciples didn't get. And I think this is one of those instances. He says, uh, you, you know where I'm going. You know the way to where I'm going. And I, I kind of picture it like this. The guys are all sitting there and they're all kind of like nodding, you know, kind of glazed over eyes. Okay, Lord. But it, not Thomas, right? What does Thomas do? Uh, Excuse me, Lord. I have a question. We don't know where you're going. And we don't know the way. I like Thomas because at least he said what he was thinking, right? Aren't you glad that Thomas asked that question? He was saying, Lord, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going somewhere else and we know the way? I'm glad Thomas asked the question because it caused the Lord then to respond with this magnificent statement. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is one of the most controversial aspects of the Christian faith because Jesus is saying that he is the only way to a relationship with God. And let's just face it, there are people that don't believe that. They believe other stuff. You know, a recent poll revealed that half, uh, 46%, nearly half of all Americans believe if a person is generally good, and does enough good stuff throughout their life that they'll earn a place in heaven. Now, that's, that's a nice thought, but it's not what the Bible says. It's not what Scripture teaches. And by the way, what definition of good are we gonna use then? If you operate by that concept as this large percentage of americans do that means that you have to do more good deeds in your life than bad deeds to try and you know balance things out and if you don't you're going to fall short of the very standard to which you hold but that's not the standard that god is going to judge us by we know from scripture that one sin one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven the Bible says that, that if you offend in one point of the law, then you're guilty of all of it. That means every one of us in this room, every one of us listening on the live stream, has sinned. Probably over and over and over again. I'll just speak for myself. It's many more than one time. You know, one definition of sin means to cross a line, Often we use the word trespass. You've seen signs, right, in your neighborhood or in your park, uh, do not trespass, don't step on the grass. Sin is like a line that you're not supposed to cross. And it doesn't matter if you just accidentally or on purpose. It doesn't matter if you cross the line, that's it. It's sin. Another sin definition is to fall short of. God sets this extremely high standard for all humanity. Do you know what the high standard is? Perfection. Perfection. And no one measures up to that standard. We all fall short. It's only in knowing Christ, trusting in his plan and his purpose for us, submitting to him as Lord and Savior that we can achieve that high standard. And that's because Jesus does it for us. We will never do it. And so friends, that is the antidote. The antidote to the poison of the troubles and hardships of life is the hope that we hold in the midst of the trials and the hardships and the troubles. Friends, it is the very narrowness of Jesus' teaching that he is the way and the truth and the life that allows us to step into the wideness the awesomeness, the glory of who he truly is, which is revealed in the next section of our text as we move from the antidote or the medicine that helps us through our troubles to the ultimate cure, the ultimate cure for heart trouble. That means it's gone altogether. And who does that? The healer himself. You know, a number of years ago, Oprah Winfrey was interviewing a woman by the name of Diane Nyad. Uh, Miss Nayad is a 64-year-old marathon swimmer who had recently, at the time of the interview, completed a 53-hour solo swim from Cuba to Florida. And in the interview, Miss Nyad said that even though she was an atheist, she could still, and I quote, Stand at the beach's edge and weep with the beauty of this universe and be moved. And so in response, Oprah said, well, then I don't call you an atheist. I I think that if you believe in the awe and the wonder and the mystery, then that is what God is. It's not a, a bearded guy in the sky, Well, Oprah's comment was fascinating on on multiple levels, not the least of which was her ability to offend both believers and atheists at the same time, (laughs) right? Folks went crazy, including the atheists who demanded that Oprah apologize for demeaning Miss Nayad's non-belief in God. And then, of course, believers upset at Oprah's flippant portrayal of God. But, but setting that aside, I want you to notice how Oprah defines God. If you believe in awe and wonder and mystery, that is God, she said. That, that's sort of like saying, if, if you're afraid, then you must believe in the boogeyman, Right? You see, Oprah's comments represent just how sloppy and squishy uh, our our cultural understanding is of God and how it's become in our world today. You know, um, God and his creation absolutely provide feelings of awe and wonder. The Apostle Paul talks quite a bit about that in Romans chapter 1. But can we know anything more about who God is beyond nebulous emotions that we might feel from time to time when we see a sunset? Who is this God that we worship and follow? What do we believe about him? And what does he reveal to us about himself? What is this seemingly narrow, exclusive way that Jesus pronounces? And and this is important. What is different about the Christian belief about God compared to other faiths? Many years ago, the great theologian A.W. Tozer observed this. He said, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let's just kind of chew on that for a moment. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, what is his claim there? What's he saying? Uh, he's saying it's because of our, our vision of God determines how we see everything else in our world. Our vision of God shapes how we see our neighbors, how we see ourselves, how we see our future, how we view our past. It shapes everything. Do we see God as an angry judge? Is he an impersonal force? Is he that old bearded guy in the sky? Is he a, an arrogant, bigoted proclaimer of his exclusive, narrow version of faith and truth? Is, is he merely a sense of awe and wonder? What we think about God really matters. And so, as we work our way through the remainder of this text from John's Gospel this morning, we're gonna explore uh, what I think is a most essential Christian teaching about God, and yet one that we often just really don't talk about. And so I want to explore this morning the Trinity. Now, you would think in a message about Trinity, you would think I would have three points. But no, I actually have four. That's that second half on your outline if you're following along. Uh, but before we jump into the, the, those four points defining the Trinity, though, let's just deal with a few preliminaries, okay? First, as you might know, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. Now, that fact alone does not mean the idea of Trinity is unbiblical. There are many theological words that we use that are not in the Bible. For instance, the word incarnation never occurs in Scripture. But we use that word to describe the very biblical idea that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. We call that the incarnation. Similarly, uh, a little bit later, at the end of of, uh, our Uh, message time, we're going to share together uh, around what we call the communion tables. Communion, do you know that word, is not in scripture? Now we use it to describe the new covenant symbol of the bread and the cup that Jesus gives to us in the New Testament, but the word communion itself is not there. So like those, we use the word trinity as a way to succinctly describe a concept of God that's found all over the Bible. Uh, Author Roger Olson put it this way. He wrote, while it is true that no single passage of Scripture spells out the doctrine of the Trinity, it is also true that the whole of Scripture's witness to who God is and who Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are make no sense at all without the model of the Trinity. So while there's no single passage of scripture that uses the word or that lays out the whole doctrine completely, there are numerous passages that, that uh, contain it implicitly, including our text today. John, and our next part of our text is verses 7 through 14 in chapter 14. So I, I'd like for you to read that with me. The words are on the screen again. Let's read this together. These are the words of Jesus. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Amen. The word of God. So, as we think about this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, Jesus speaks about his close relationship first to the Father and then to the Holy Spirit. He speaks of unity with his Father. In verse nine, he says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. But he also speaks of himself and the Father and the Spirit as different persons. And here's what's intriguing to me. This this text begins a much larger conversation that's gonna be carried out in John 14 and John 15 and John 16. So we're gonna be working our way through this. And all of this happens in that upper room after the Last Supper. And it is Jesus' final teaching to the guys before his betrayal and death. And when his disciples were, you know, they're about to have their world collapse on them. Talk about trouble. There's big stuff coming. And because of that, the Lord chooses to spend much of his remaining time with them speaking about this mystery of who he is and who the Father is and who the Spirit is, the Trinity if anything could underline the necessity of this teaching for practical Christianity, I think these, last, uh, these three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, these statements of Jesus are likely to do it. So what did Jesus teach them about the Trinity? What does Scripture say about the nature of God? Let, let's define this concept. You know, often when people try to explain the Trinity, they use some sort of, you know, clunky, limited analogy. I've heard things like, you know, uh, God is like water, you know, liquid and solid and gas. Or uh, God is like an egg, you know, a shell and a white and a yolk. Or there's a, the famous one of St. Patrick. Uh, you know, uh, he, he used a shamrock, uh, one plant with three leaves. The, the truth is, as handy as those those analogies might be, all of them fail. They all fail. They each in some way violate what scripture reveals to us about the nature of God. You see, the problem is we want to take a mystery, something huge and unfathomable, something as big as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and we want to reduce it to a a simple phrase that we can stick on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. And it just doesn't work. So I'm not going to be giving you a a nifty little analogy, but I still want to help us to understand what Scripture says about God. So instead, we're going to define the Trinity with not three, but four words. So let's just breeze through these really quickly here. And the first one is this. The first word is one, one. We believe there is one God. This is the unwavering message of both the Old and the New Testaments. It's most famously articulated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The the Jewish people call this the Shema. It's the daily recited prayer of faithful Jews. They will recite this in the morning and the evening. In fact, let's recite this together, the the Shema. Um, Go ahead and put that on the screen. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Amen. Amen. This is one of the most significant differences between Orthodox Christianity and some uh, other uh, American religions. For instance, Mormonism. Uh, Mormons teach that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three different gods. Now, that's not what Christians believe, and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. Or Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that there is no Trinity because they believe that Jesus Christ is a God, a little g God, but he is not the God of the Bible. And they also would teach that the Holy Spirit is what they call an active force rather than a real person. But friends, Scripture unwavingly teaches that there is one God and that this one God exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that leads us to our second word, which you might guess is three. One and then three. Here's another way to say it. We believe in one God who is a community of three persons. So, for instance, when, if God's table were ready at the restaurant, the hostess would call out, God, party of three, your table is now ready. See, to understand how the one and the three thing works, we're going to have two more words. So the third word is diversity. God is a diversity The community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is one God, and yet they are eternally different persons. And this is where things get a little strange, even a little paradoxical, if you will. You know, some folks have uh, tried to simplify this by saying, well, the Father and the Son and the Spirit aren't really three separate persons, they're just three different names for God. Now, that's actually an ancient heresy. It has a name to it. It's called modalism. And that's not what Scripture teaches either. In John chapter 14, Jesus isn't saying that he is the Father or that he is the Spirit. He's saying that he is one with the Father and Spirit, and yet they are different persons. There is diversity. That leads us to our fourth word. Not only is our diversity, but there is also unity. These three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nonetheless exist in perfect unity and harmony with each other. Now later on, when we get to chapter 17, we're going to see that the Father gives glory to the Son. And the Son gives glory to the Father. And in chapter 15, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus. And so in the Trinity, there exists no jealousy, no hostility, no competition, no disharmony. The Trinity is perfectly united as a community. And I think our our next section of text helps us to see a little bit more of this diversity and unity as Jesus describes the working of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in our lives as we walk in obedience to their purpose for us. Now, by the way, I'm not going to dwell much on the obedience aspect in today's message. Not because it's not important. It is very important. But Brother Larry Bailey uh, has written a companion article. It's on the back of your sermon outline. And it is a great overview of the consequences of obedience. And so I want to encourage you to find time this week to read through that and meditate on what Larry has to share with us but for now let's read this next section of john 14 together beginning in verse 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. All right, is that the last slide? Okay, we're gonna stop right there. So, those four words that you need in order to have the doctrine of the Trinity. One, three, diversity, unity. One God, who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not the same. They are different from each other, and yet they exist and function in that perfect unity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three different names of God, nor are they three different functions of God. It's not as if God puts on his Father hat to create the world, and then wears the Son hat to bring redemption, and the Spirit hat to to bring comfort or, or, or sanctification. All three persons of the Trinity are united and involved in everything that God does. You know, at creation, in Genesis 1, it talks about how the Son and the Spirit were there Right along with the Father. And Jesus spoke often, as he does here in John 14, of his unity and the presence of the Father. It's the Father who raised him from the dead. And notice in verse 16, it is the Son who asks the Father to send the Spirit. They're all three right there. They are united but diverse. They are three persons but one God. So if we lose any one of these four uh, words, then we lose the truth of the Trinity. And we then slip into something other than what Scripture reveals. Something other than historical Orthodox Christianity. Now I realize this is a lot of information. It's kind of a a mind-twisting idea. It's a paradox that in some ways is really beyond our full ability to grasp. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's God and we're not. God is so different from us, and yet we are created in his image. You know, we could spend weeks unpacking it further or looking into all the passages that speak to the reality about God, but I want to use our remaining time here to ask, so what? Why does the Trinity matter for you and for me? Now, last week, we learned that at the root of the gospel, God's plan to save humanity is love. Love, authentic love. Before there was anything, there was love. Because at the foundation of the universe is not matter or laws or energy or even will. It is relationship. We believe in a relational God, a God who existed forever in perfect, loving relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Before there were planets and stars and galaxies, and long before there was you and me or anyone else, for God to love, the Trinity has been a community of perfect love. Do you like, do you like a good party? you like to go to a good party? The doctrine of the Trinity kind of tells us that God... Is a party. We kind of use that picture, if you will, that this world is built on the foundation of a relationship. That's why we can say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. This is what separates the Christian vision of God from all others. The message of Jesus Christ is not that we are to adhere to a set of laws. That's what Islam teaches. That's what Judaism teaches. Jesus didn't give us a set of rituals to perform or practices to follow. That's what Hinduism does. That's what Buddhism does. Jesus' message was that we are invited to join the party that the Trinity has been enjoying since before the end of time for the beginning of time excuse me as we count it friends the, the trinity is a party of, of love and joy and peace and goodness and creativity and power and glory and it's been going on forever and it will continue forever and you and I have been invited to participate in that not because we deserve to be there Certainly not because we've earned the right to be there, but because a long time ago, the Father sent the Son. And the Son revealed to us this everlasting party. And he died so that our sin would not prevent us from joining in. And the Father raised him from the dead through the power of the Spirit. And when we put our faith in him, we too can be filled with the Spirit, raised from the death to life. And we join the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this eternal party, the party that will never end. And that, friends, is the ultimate cure for our heart troubles Not even an antidote, but a complete cure when we trust in Jesus fully. Bristlecone pine trees are fascinating trees. They grow in the western United States in mountain regions, sometimes as high as two or three miles above sea level. And these evergreens may live for thousands of years. The older specimens often have only a very thin layer of bark one layer on their trunks. Now, considering the habitat of the trees, rocky areas, the soil is poor, precipitation is is almost non-existent, It, it seems almost incredible that these trees should live so long or even survive at all. But it is the environmental adversities that actually contribute to the longevity of these trees. Cells are produced as a result of the harsh conditions. And they're densely arranged. And and, and then resin canals form within the plant. Wood that is so structured, it continues to live for an extremely long period of time. One researcher said bristlecone pines, in richer conditions, will grow faster, but they will die much earlier and decay. So it is the very harshness of their surroundings that is vital in creating an environment where these trees can become strong and sturdy and grow for a long, long time. That's a great illustration because it reminds me of this, friends. Throughout the history of the church, harsh conditions, troubles have caused growth And flourishing. And it doesn't make sense, but it works that way. Persecution and hardships have caused the church to rise up. And to prevail. And friends, as you and I face our own troubles. Our own challenges. May we thank God. That he is with us. That his spirit comforts and strengthens us, and may we trust in him to make us flourish. He is the cure for our heart troubles. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful.